Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5 as we continue to look at this great paragraph. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be here today and then again next week. And really and truly, this is a paragraph. There, the scriptures are this way. This, but this specifically is a paragraph that we could spend months here. You, you can't exhaust this paragraph. It will exhaust you far faster than you will exhaust it. I would say that this is one of those places in Scripture that it's complex. It's hard to understand. I don't know if Peter was thinking about this particular thing or not, but he definitely says that about Paul, that our brother Paul writes things that are hard to comprehend. I think we're looking at that, and last week we began to look at it by taking the whole passage, 12 through 19, and looking at it from the perspective of Adam. And we're going to review over some of that this morning. But then we're going to move on and talk about Christ and who Christ is and how he and Adam are the head of the human race, the two of them, distinct from all other humans who have ever lived on the planet. There's no one else in this category. Adam and Christ stand alone as the representatives before God the Father for humanity. And either you are represented by Adam this morning, or you're represented by Christ this morning. There's no in-between. There's no halfway house. You're either dead in your sins, or you're alive in Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see this morning. Look how Paul writes it. We'll read it again, just so we're fresh on our minds. What he says in verse 12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
And we won't cover these past, this next part of the passage at all today, but let's read it. It's so beautiful. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The story that we're looking at, the background behind which Adam uh, Adam is being talked about, that Paul is on Paul's mind, is clearly from Genesis 1 and and 2 and 3. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have the entirety of the human story all in three chapters. The whole Bible is given to us in three chapters. And then the 99% that comes after that is to help us fully understand what took place in those opening chapters. What Paul is doing for us in in Romans chapter 5 is he's dipping back into that original story so that we can understand the significance of justification. He's been on justification, right? Since chapter 1 through chapter 4, he's just steadily unfolding the doctrine of justification. And in chapter 5, he's given us the beauty of the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ and the hope that we can have in Him. And at this moment, it's astounding if you think about it. He could have moved on, but instead he goes back after offering this great hope to us. He goes back to justification, but he goes through a different door this time. In Romans 1 through 4, he's laid it out systematically in a sense. He's given us the pieces. But in Romans 5, 12 and following, he takes a story. And he says, this is what justification is. And he does it through the story of our two fathers, Adam and Christ, our two heads, our two representatives. So Genesis chapter 1 is very familiar to you, I'm sure, as God details the, the making of all things. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God crowned the creative act by creating a being in his image, after his likeness. Adam is unlike any of God's other creation. 
If anyone tells you that you are nothing but a higher order animal, they are denying Christianity. We are not merely intelligent, communicating animals. We are separate and distinct from all animals. We are a special creation. We are crowned with the glory of being in the image of God. That's what Adam was created to be, the representative of God on the earth. And he had two distinct roles that are given to us in chapters 1 and 2. The first one, he was given rulership, co-rulership with God. You see it in the passage in Genesis 1.28 when he says, Subdue it and have dominion over it. Adam was to rightly order all of the earth. He was to place it under the direct rule of him and Eve and their descendants, but under the indirect rule of the greater sovereign king in heaven. Adam was be acting as a king under the rulership of the great king. So he's a king, this creation, this Adam that is being created. But he's even more than that. The Bible details for us in chapter 2, and you may be confused about this, but in chapter 2 what God shows us is the special creation of the garden. Not the earth in general, but the specific garden, which would be the home and the dwelling place of God with man. And so, he gives us the measurements. When you're reading your Bible, just a little biblical theology here, when you're reading your Bible and God begins to give measurements to a thing, it has special, uh, special religious worship implications. When God measures something, whether that something is a garden, or whether that something is a promised land, or whether that something is a building, a tabernacle, or a permanent, more permanent building, a temple, or a city like Jerusalem. Whenever God begins to give the details of the measurement of something, He's setting it apart as holy. It's to be used for man and Him to commune. And that's what He does for us at the beginning of chapter 2, is He shows us the measurements of this original place where He will dwell with mankind. The boundaries of the literal, original, earthly temple. Where the worship of God will be so pristine. And he places man in it. And in verse 15, look what he says. The Lord God, or listen to what he says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. These two words in the Hebrew are used almost exclusively for the work of the priests of God. They are to tend and keep the temple. They are to tend and keep the tabernacle. The sons of Levi were given this same command. Why? Because Adam is not just any royal king, but he is a king who is a priest before God Almighty. His work in keeping the garden is a work of worship for God and it is the extension of this garden to the ends of the earth. He says to him in the original chapter 1 statement that he is to subdue the earth. He is to overcome the earth. 
He is to have dominion over all of the earth and all of the creatures. Why? Because He's to make that place of worship from shore to shore. From sea to sea. All of the the earth was to be covered with the glory of God and the worship of God Almighty. And it was to be filled with His likeness. How? Because they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the tabernacle, the temple of the created order with God's image. This was his high and holy calling. This is what he is to do. And he makes for him a helper, the woman, to work with him. There's no more beautiful story than this story. In the Old Testament, this story of creation is woven through all of the other stories. And then in Genesis chapter 3, this pristine creation, this worshipful order, this king who is a priest, with his helper, deny God. We won't read the whole account. You know it. Serpent, induced by Satan himself, comes into the worship space of God, and rather than tend and keep it, Adam turned his back on it. And allowed that unholy thing to enter into what was supposed to be holy. Adam stood by not protecting his wife, but allowing her to be deceived and to fall into sin. And worse than that, Adam affirmed her sin by sinning. And it's through him that all of the destruction came. You see, because God had told them in chapter 2 that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day, if you eat it, you will surely die. And they ate it, and they died. They died both in their relationship to one another and in their relationship to God. They spiritually died in the moment, and physical death became the curse on all of creation. But buried in the curse... Against the man and against the creation is a promise, which I want to draw your attention to in verse 15. Listen to these words. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians know. This is what you have heard all of your life probably if you've been hanging around good churches This is the original promise of the gospel, the good news, right here in Genesis chapter 3. So when I say the whole story of the Bible is in three chapters, and then the rest of the Bible is simply building out the story, that's exactly what we have in front of us. Because at the end of chapter 3, we find God's way back home after sin. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of the knowledge of the life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to, t- to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and flaming sword and tur- that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Adam, if you can't keep my word, then I will keep you from me and from this place. You will not be able to re-enter a relationship with me through effort of your own, through 
of fulfilling this. His hope of fulfilling the promise God made to him or the responsibilities God made to him and received the promises that God had made to him was gone. And it had a tragic effect that we see even in uh, the Bible in, in, in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. And we'll just read one verse, one group of verses in Genesis 5. I mentioned them last week. Genesis 5 tells us this is the book of the generation of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he named the man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, notice this, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his own image. And he named him Seth. What God indicates through Moses is that there's been a shift. Adam was made in God's image. But all of his children were born into his image. And so it is this story that lies behind our passage today. Every human ever born is born into the sin of Adam. Look at the text in Romans that you've been waiting patiently for me to get to. Adam is the one man from whom we receive the following. Sin, death, judgment, condemnation, the reigning of death, the inescapableness of death, and disobedience. Our text says that when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now we have to ask the question about this. Is God saying that we imitated our father and sinned like him? Or is God saying when he sinned, we were all counted sinners with him? I think the answer becomes clear if we look at the text. In verse 15, notice what he says as he begins to contrast the gift, which we're going to get to in a moment, with what happened in, in Adam, excuse me, in verse uh, 16, this is what it says, and the free gift's not like the result of the, that one man's sin, for the judgment following how many trespasses? One trespass. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, generally. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And then we look down and we see in verse 18, as he transitions, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Why are mankind sinners? Because of one man. Because of one trespass. Because of one sin. All mankind are sinners. So when he says in verse 12 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and sin... Then death spread to all men because all sinned. The answer to the question from the text is, so we're not confused, it is not that I have many sins, but that I sinned with Adam. 
Adam sinned on my behalf. Here's a word for you. The sin of Adam was imputed to me. It was counted to me. We focus often on imputation. Imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Christ's obedience, obedience to us. But the Bible equally focuses on the fact that man's sin in Adam was imputed to all men. It was accounted to all men. Now that's contrary to maybe all that you have heard. Because we are steeped in individualism. We believe that we are only accountable for what we do. And that is true, but it's not all the truth. You are accountable for God before God because of your sin. But God also looks at you as part of the community of humanity. And in Adam, the community of humanity was condemned. What, what examples do we have of this? Well, the Old Testament is a great book to show us this. When Achan took the things that were committed to God in the midst of the battle of Jericho, and he hid them, how many men in Achan's family sinned? All of them. Wait, no, one guy got a carpet, rolled up the gold, silver, the good things, and took it back to the tent and buried it. But if you see what happens, what does God do? He doesn't just punish Achan. He doesn't just punish Achan's family. Who does he punish? All of Israel. They go to fight Ai. And God took the life of those soldiers that day. And Joshua fell on his face before God to intercede for them. And God said, there's sin in your camp. You have taken that which is holy and made it unholy. And so he took Achan out by lot. And he took Achan's family out. And all of Achan's family was delivered the judgment and condemnation due for Achan's sin. God was accounting the family with the representative of the family. It's not just in Achan, but it's in Korah. Korah and some of his tribe. They sinned against God. They attacked Moses' leadership. And when God judged them, he brought all of them out. Men, women, children, and all their possessions. And he opened up the earth and he swallowed every one of them into the earth and closed it over them. And it's not just them. It's also us. The truth is that because of the sin of Adam, all of us deserves to die. All of us deserves to die. Not for what we've done individually, but because of who we are. The reason the modern church has the wrong solution to your problems is because they start in the wrong place. Not many churches will talk to you about this because it offends many Americans especially to talk in corporate nature. We're the people who say, oh, it ain't my sin. Don't, don't blame me for what my grandparents did. Don't talk to me about what people did a hundred years ago. I'm not responsible for that. I don't live that way. I'll do you one better. God holds you as an individual, accountable 
for a sin that was committed about 6,500 years ago. He holds you accountable for it. Because when that man sinned, you sinned. He brings up verses 13 and 14 like he does because he knows he's opened up a problem. He opened up the problem by saying because all sinned, and then he wanted to say, well, wait a minute, they're going to think that I said that they're dying because of their individual sins. So he brings up the problem of those who lived between Moses, uh, before Moses' time. He brings those people up for a reason, and the reason is, is because they didn't sin like the Adam did or like those after the law was revealed. They sinned in a different way. How did they sin? They were born, and they were born rebellious against God. And, and I know last week that I probably stirred the feathers a little by bringing this up. And I may stir them again, but it's exactly, I was reconfirmed to this last night as I was thinking about this text as I went off to sleep. This principle of headship is proven by the death of our children. If children weren't born with original sin, they could not die. Death is not just some vague thing out there. Death is directly resulting of a person being a sinner. I'm going to confirm it for you later, but I just want to say it. Humans die because we are born in the sin of our first parent, Adam. That's why we die. Now we go on, those of us who live past infancy, to confirm our sinfulness with our actions. And therefore we stand accountable for our own sins. We have a double problem. We have a root problem, which is our original sin we inherit, and we have our culpable problem, our moral problem, which is that we are sinners acting on our sin every moment of every day before we come to know Christ. And so the power of sin holds us all in its sway. We have received sin and death and judgment and condemnation and death is reigning over us who are disobedient because of who we are, not because of choices we're making. That is the negative side of this passage. But gloriously, Paul doesn't stop with just the negative side. He brings up in verse 14 that the transgression of Adam is different because he's sinning against God directly as the head of the human race, who, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And this sets him up to launch out into the glorious good news of justification. You see, he says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Aaron brought it out in, before our confession, look at those words, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In Christ, under his headship, what do we receive? This passage says we receive a free gift, the grace of God, justification. We get to reign in life. Righteousness is ours and obedience belongs to those who belong to Christ. That's what this passage says in 15 through 17. We receive the gift of God, the free gift of God, the grace of God, the judgment that uh, brought condemnation now has been replaced by the free gift, according to verse 16, that brought us justification. He brings that subject up here. 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, verse 17 says, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He says under one, you get nothing but sin, death, condemnation, judgment, separation from God, but under the other's headship, under Christ, the second Adam. You receive all of the grace of God, all of the free gift of God, justification, reigning in life, obedience and righteousness. Now, under the headship of Christ, we have to come to understand what does that really mean. Let's, let's unpack it a little. Let's, let's talk about it. How does this work? Adam was created by God. And the second Adam was made by God. What we see in the beginning of the New Testament is a similar story to what we see in the first three chapters. God has selected for himself a young virgin who has never been with a man. And he makes in her a new man. His only son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. This one man born lived perfectly and actively obeying the commands of his father for all 33 years of his life. On this earth, he walked according to the plan of his father, the will of his father. He obeyed the law. And what Paul wants us to understand is all of that obedience, all of that following the law, all of that, he was doing it as the representative of his people. He wasn't acting alone. He was acting instead of. This is not legal fiction because of headship. Headship, federalness, allows for God, is the plan of God so that he might forgive the sins of his people. If you deny this doctrine, you cut off any hope of salvation. If you deny federal headship, you lose salvation. Why? Because justification is impossible. Because we all fail the test. We're all sinners. Therefore, Jesus Christ would have to die for each and every one of us individually. And he can't do that. If you're not represented by Adam, you can't be represented by Christ. You say, well, that's, that's a leap, but it's really not. There's already woven into the creation a picture of this for us, the angels of heaven. Jesus tells us in the Gospels when questioned about marriage in the next life, a woman marries five different people, who's she going to be married to in the next life? And he says, you misunderstand the resurrection. In that resurrection, you will neither be taken in marriage nor given in marriage, but you will be like the angels, asexual. So angels don't reproduce themselves. So how did we get all the angels? God made them all. God made all the angels at one time. And all those angels were tested by God. Well, how did the test go? Well, for two-thirds of them, it went really well. They obeyed God. But for a third of them, it didn't go well. Lucifer, the great deceiver, who wanted to be God instead of worship God, took a third of his brethren with him in the rebellion. And God defeated that rebellion and cast them out 
of heaven. Jude tells us that he locked them away and that there was no hope of their salvation. Why? Because each one of them had failed the test. Each one of them, not being represented by anything else, standing before God as individuals, each one of them had gone their own way, and God locked them into that eternally. Had God created all of humanity and tested us, we're left to believe the same thing would have happened for us. Those who failed the test would have no one to stand in their place. No system under which they could be redeemed. Paul goes further into this in his writings to the churches when he says, the angels look at the relationship between the church and God and they marvel at it and they long to understand it. Why? Because when their brothers fell into sin, there was no redemption. But these humans who were plunged into sin by Adam, had some of them, not all of them, but some of them have been redeemed by a new representative. They rejoice in heaven in the face of their father because the victorious representative blood has been applied to another soul. And they rejoice and celebrate in the presence of God because of the greatness of the greater Adam, the second Adam, who gives the free gift, grace, life, allows his people to reign with him because of his obedience and his righteousness which is accounted to them as their very own. That's how we stand before God for all of eternity, under the headship of our older brother, the perfect one who came and died. At the end of his life, after being perfect and sinless and passing the trial and the test, having been tested in every way just like us, yet without sin, he ate the last meal with his men, and he left the upper room rejoicing. He went, by no mistake, to the Mount of Olives where he held a prayer vigil in a garden with his men. See, the test wasn't over. The Lord left them and went a little ways away and knelt down and began to pray. And he agonized over obedience because he knew what it would cost him. He agonized in the garden that night, praying alone, tested alone for you and for you and for you, Christian, and for me. Why? Because in just a few hours, he would be made sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The word became is not that he literally had sin born inside of him, but it means he had sin transferred to him. In a garden, our Savior, like our first head, did war against the task before him. He did war with it. He knew it, the depths of it. He sweat blood for it. And he submitted his will. Father, if there's any other way to accomplish this, but if there's no other way, let your will be done. He willingly accepted your sin on that cross. And he knew the pain that was coming his way. 
the separation that was coming his way. And so his sin, our sin was imputed to him as his very own. It wasn't his own. It was yours and it was mine, but he took it on himself. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The one who had never committed a trespass was counted as a trespasser. You see, all of humanity was plunged into destruction at the foot of a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because of the sinfulness of wanting to be their own God. But thousands of years later, our second head was nailed to a tree. And he took the sin that belonged to us on himself and he transferred the righteousness that belonged to him to our accounts. And at a tree, we were set free. That's the beauty of federal headship. So before you raise your arrogant hand before the Lord and say, it's not fair. It's not fair. I didn't choose to sin like Adam. I didn't choose to go down that path. How dare you take another man's sin and put it on me? Just understand that when you say that, what you're also saying is, how dare you crucify Christ for me? How dare you count my sin on his behalf and his righteousness on my behalf? If you reject original imputation, you reject all imputation, and therefore you stand in your sin before God and you're damned to a sinner's hell. You're locked in. You have no hope. But Paul refuses to let justification go away as he begins to transition in his letter. He refuses to let it go away. He brings it back up because he wants us to understand it's not a matter it's not a matter of what any one individual does with any one choice of their life, but our whole lives are under the sway and the power of sin, and we need a Savior. And we need a new head, a new representative. And so if you're here this morning, and you're hearing all of this, maybe even for the first time, and you're thinking, this is why psychologizing my sin does me no good. It's not a mental problem, sin. It leads to mental problems if you stay in it. But it's not a mental problem at the root. And your problem is not the sin of another person that has sinned against you and caused you traumatic events in your life. That's not your greatest problem, Paul would say. And it's not that you were exposed to others' sins, so you became awakened to sin, that's not your problem. And your problem's not where you were born or who you were born to. Your problem is, you are in Adam, and in Adam you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You have a much bigger problem than you could ever imagine. And so what Paul wants you to know is, there's no way out for you. There's no hope for you in standing in yourself. And so he lifts up the beautiful Savior and says, call on him that you may be saved. Because where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. As great as sin is, grace is greater than all of that sin. 
Listen, church. In 15 and 17, when he brings up the much more qualification, in that whole section of 15 through 17, when he's laboring to say the, trespass, the gift is not like the trespass, this is what he means by that. This is what he means by that. And we're going to be finished with this one. When Adam sinned, he plunged us, all of us, into an infinite sin because our sin was committed against a holy, perfect, sinless infinite being God. Sin, it's not like we went negative 10, like kind of bad. No, we went infinitely sinful, infinitely sinful. You see what I'm saying? It can't get any worse. The chasm between us and God was immediately in, beyond our abilities to span, okay? So we're separated from God. But in verse 15, what he says is that the grace of God, the free gift, abounded from the one man, Jesus Christ, much more. So here's the beauty of it. In our federal head, Jesus Christ, we don't go from infinite sin, infinitely sinful back to the original state of sinlessness. Why isn't that good enough? That's... That's the forgiveness of our sins. We talk about it all the time. That's a wonderful thing. But here's the problem. If that's all we get, what, what he's saying right here is, if all that happens is you go from infinitely separated from God back to Adam's state of sinlessness, what happens? Well, you, you then go out and sin. The free gift is not like the trespass, but if many, for if many were made through, uh, died through the one man's trespass, much more. What does that mean? He took us from infinite sinfulness to infinite sinlessness. He took us from the depths of hell, that's where we were here, the hell-bound race, to the glories of heaven. He didn't return us to the Garden of Eden. He's going to take us to the New Jerusalem. That's what he's promised us. And that's what we have available, Christian, even now. Our federal head, we are where he is. That's, that's reality. Like Aaron brought up, and I brought it up last week, whenever our senators and our representatives sit down in their seats of Congress, we're all sitting with them. We're all sitting with them. And when they talk, we're talking. And when they vote, we vote. Now, that's a scary thought. <laughs> but that's the truth. Where is our federal head? Well, he's seated next to the right hand of the Father. So where are we? Where are we, church? Say it. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Does that change your life or not? Does that transform you from one state to another? Does that give you victory over sin? Does that mean you'll live a life in keeping with the gospel? Does that mean that you will fight the fight against your sin every moment of every day? Of course it does. That's where he's headed. That's chapter 6. He's going to get there. We're going to get there. And when we get there, you'll probably want to get out of there. 
Because when you sin in your daily walk, you're acting just like your first father, Adam. Say, well, if I'd been in the garden and had God near to me, I wouldn't have chosen like he did. Yes, you would. Because even with the righteousness of Christ, you go back into the old sinful ways and patterns even now. Even seated at the right hand of the Father, you choose your sin regularly. You drink from the poisonous well. You deny the goodness of the Savior. And so, Christian, if you're lost, I've already talked to you, right? What do you need to do? Look to the new head and call for him to represent you. But, Christian, what do you need to do? You need to recognize that your federal head sits at the right hand of the Father, and so do you. And so when Satan comes with his lies and says, oh man, just a fleeting little look, it won't hurt anything, go ahead. You can boldly look at that and say, oh, let me tell you, I would never take my gaze off of the glories of heaven to look at that. When he comes to you and says, you deserve a better wife to treat you nice, you need to remind him, oh, what I deserve is hell, but what I've received is the glory of heaven. And as long as I'm in this life, I will represent that glorious head that is mine to my beautiful wife. This becomes our justification. Our new representative becomes the way we fight our sin. You see what I'm saying? This is a very practical. It's complex. It's hard. I know even this morning you, you've done really well. You strained with me to understand it. But the practical application of it is so good because it's the practical application of walking in this reality that kills your sin so that your sin doesn't kill you. Church, we have been set free from sin. We have been counted righteous in Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. So the only thing left for us is to live in that reality. On a daily basis. By the power of the Spirit, may we go forward into this life under the headship of Adam. Our, it's our second Adam. May we live according to the reality that we are represented in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, having looked at this passage for two consecutive weeks, we've dwelled and dwelled and thought and looked and begged for you to help us understand. And so many of us have come to understanding. It's clicked for the first time, God. May we take from this moment forward, may we take out in the direction of you, Jesus, our good shepherd, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, who when he comes will bring who we really are with you. Thank you. Thank you is so, so insufficient for how we want to express our gratefulness to you. Thank you for living our life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserved and giving us the eternal glory that we could have never received. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, we're going to sing a song. The, the team's going to lead us in it. And it's a beautiful response to what you've just heard. You're going to know it, some of you and some of you are not. It's a brand new song called Christ the True and Better Adam. While we sing it here on the stage, would you stand and would you listen to these words? Would you follow along and sing with all of your heart to our head, Jesus Christ? 
Christ the true and better Adam, son of